Welcome back to The Great Indoors. Before we dive into today's interview, I want to tell you about our next season, which will be recorded live at MWC Barcelona from February the 26th to the 29th. You'll hear from industry experts, explore new innovations, and gain new insight into the world of connectivity. New episodes coming early March, wherever you get your podcasts. OpenAI, the research and development team behind viral bots, could see a valuation of up to $29 billion. I believe that there will be far greater jobs on the other side of this. Well, the best thing you can do as a CEO to jump, jumpstart your stock is talk about AI. We're also deeply investing in AI responsibility. AI is going to change everything. Is government needed to play a role in regulating AI? The consequences of AI going wrong are, are severe. Unless you've been living on the moon, there is really only one story for 2023. And that, of course, is generative AI. In fact, it started at the end of 2022, the 30th of November to be precise, as OpenAI unleashed ChatGPT to the world. This date will be significant in human history, as nothing in our everyday lives will be quite the same ever again. Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the biggest problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matthew Roberts, and joining me as ever is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. Now, this is the finale of season seven that is taking us across Canada to Las Vegas, Nevada, and beyond. And really, we couldn't finish this season on a greater high, as today's episode is quite frankly one of the most captivating discussions I have had in the history of this podcast. I think you figured it out, but we will be talking about the topic of the year. In fact, this is probably the biggest topic of the last 30 years, and that, of course, is generative AI. Not since the birth of the internet 30 years ago has the technology created such a whirlwind of discourse, future-gazing, trepidation, optimism, and advancement. And my guest to discuss this is legendary across the tech world, and that is, of course, Mr. Shelley Palmer. Now, Shelley has been on The Great Indoors before. He opened up our season two way back in 2021. Friend of ours and a friend of Amdocs. And and for a bit of background, Shelley holds the position of Professor of Advanced Media in Residence at Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communications. He has served as the former president of the National Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences, a New York chapter and chaired both the Advanced Media Committee and the Technology Committee for that organization. As the CEO of the Palmer Group, a consulting practice, Palmer provides strategic advisory technology solutions and business development services, assists Fortune 500 companies focusing on technology, media, and marketing, with a special emphasis on machine learning and data-driven decision-making. He is recognized as LinkedIn's top voice in technology, and Shelley has influenced a wide audience through his work with various brands, agencies, broadcasters, publishers, and tech platforms. He's also the creator of the popular online course titled Generative AI for Execs, which reflects his expertise and commitment to educating professionals about the evolving landscape of AI technology. So I'm really proud to welcome Shelley Palmer to the season seven finale today. 
So thank you for joining us, Shelley. Welcome back to The Great Indoors. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to see you both. Yeah, awesome. If we could turn the clock back three years, I remember something you said to us as part of that conversation that was, at the time, unique. It was the first time I'd heard it. And it is now reality. And I remember it was the notion where you said, listen, I think the biggest disruption in in future years is automation and AI in content creation and production and how that's going to affect. And I, I remember we talked about it. You said it's it's going to disrupt the workforce. It's going to uh, upend people's jobs. It's going to create new jobs. But you called it out. You were the first one to call it out in January 2021. This is a unbelievable bifurcation brought to you by automation of every kind, whether it be AI or just straight RPA, you know, ro robotic process automation. All of this productivity increase being forced by where we are right now. So here we are now. And I'd noticed that you'd written something on uh, on LinkedIn that I thought was really interesting. And it was you classified the date, the 30th of November, 2022, as that milestone, that, that cutover point. Tell us a little bit about that, because I, I, I must admit, I did use it in a presentation that I gave last week. So I, I owe you some royalties on that. But just give our listeners a, 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 an insight into that and, and, and how impactful that date was. So uh, for, for better or for worse, everybody thinks that AI was invented on November 30th, 2022. Now, of course, that's nonsense. It probably goes back to 1943 with Perceptron, the very first of the AI uh, models. But that's an important date because that's the date that ChatGPT became a consumer product. And it was, as everybody knows, and we've it's a cliche at this point, it was the fastest growing technology to 100 million users of, of any you know technology. But that date is is an important date. While it's not the day that AI was invented, thank you very much. It is what I'm calling the CG boundary. And if you think about generative AI as a transitional or transformational product. The transformation is from curation to generation. Prior to November 30th, 2022, any piece of content you would find anywhere online, anything created digitally, you had a 99.9% .9 chance that it was created with the heavy hand of a human being, mostly human created. Now there's plenty of CG, there's plenty of digital creation tools, Adobe Illustrator, Procreate, uh, every kind of digital audio and digital video workstation in the world, any kind of animation programs, but they all require, prior to that date, they'll require you to know something about how to use them and to direct them very specifically by using your artistic skills, musical skills, and writing skills. Post that date, you do not have any certainty that there's a high percentage of the content, no matter what it is that you find, that is solely and only written by a human. So uh, the way I call it the CG boundary, the curation generation boundary, because anything created before that is probably only human and anything created after that has a lower and lower as we go into what I lovingly call now the generative era and every day forward, there's more and more synthetic contribution. And so 
human history is no longer written by humans, which is what I was talking about a couple of years ago. So there's come come time in a very short order where these tools are are autonomous and they will do our bidding by description as opposed to having us operate them with our hands or our, you know, some other uh, way. And now it's exactly what's happening. The curation generation boundary is a fascinating boundary more because we're on a path to monoculture. We're on a path to mediocrity because of it uh, than any other reason. And not to put too fine a point on this, the current large language models, given their own devices and their training, and I'm saying current because there's a whole other way this can go. The way we do it now, the way that GPT-4 Turbo is trained or GPT-4 or GPT-3.5 from OpenAI, Claude from Anthropic, Llama from Facebook or Meta, the way all of these models are Grok from, from now X, the way all these models are trained, they're scraping some amount of public data that's available to everyone. The model pattern matches. What that means is it's calculating the next, next best token. It's doing what it can to find a pattern it recognizes, and then it's putting what it believes the next best token is. Token is three to four uh, English language uh, characters, pretty much any language is three to four characters and spaces. So if you think about what a current large language model can do, what a current word calculator can do, it could pass the bar exam or, or, or get a 178 on the LSATs, but it couldn't pass preschool. Like it, it's seen yeah. patterns. It's seen every pattern in the LSAT. So it can pass, it, it knows the questions. It, but if you said, here's a bucket and here's a, a cup and here's a straw, take the water from the bucket and get it into the cup. You have to use the straw. It hasn't seen that pattern and it's not going to necessarily get it right. So what do you make of a system that could pass the bar exam or pass the LSATs and can't pass preschool? you're going to get this insanely mediocre writing out of it. And that's what you get, insanely mediocre writing that is similar to everything else that has ever been written like that. So if you want the same proposal over and over again, you've come to the right place. If you want a slightly modified five-paragraph expository written essay that's written that Mr. Riley's ninth grade English, uh, my ninth grade English teacher would give you an A on, sure. But at a ninth or 10th grade level, maybe eighth, seventh or eighth grade level, you want to get like something better. You're going to have to have an immense amount of subject matter expertise to draw out more from the model. That's today. What's coming next and why the CG boundary may not have as much impact on the future as, as I'm thinking when I, when I made the term up. If we get to the point where models approach general artificial general intelligence where you can give them a small data set to train on and they learn on their own which is the goal of of everybody who's messing with any version of ai right now then we're going to be in another place then then we have an, a, literally another intelligence that we're dealing with that might be able to do things that we would deem to be or rightly or wrongly misidentify or identify as independently creative of a human but right now we are in this we're on this insane road to a xerox of a xerox of a xerox of a xerox and the cg boundary is profound because prior to that you could find something that is the subject matter expertise of a human being and a human sort of said okay i'm going to write a story i'm going to 
play a piece of music and compose a piece of music. I'm going to draw a piece of artwork. After that boundary, there is very little chance that it's 100% human. Look, you've got Microsoft with Copilot, autocomplete. Google with Bard and Duet, autocomplete. Uh, Salesforce with Einstein, autocomplete. All of a sudden, like it, everything is becoming the sentence is homogenous. Microsoft. Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's like going into an IKEA everywhere. It's like going into an Apple store everywhere. It's like everybody's got like you guys are wearing amazing sweaters today, but let's just pretend you weren't, right? It's like so everybody's got the same you know blue cardigan because blue cardigans are what you're supposed to have. I, I think we're headed there faster than anyone can imagine. Certainly, a business communication. It's thirty bucks a seat. Microsoft selling as fast as they can. So every email is going to start looking the same. Every meeting summary is going to start being formatted the same. And if you think about how every website looks exactly the same now, like really every top end website, it either looks like Amazon or Apple. Choose your like choose it. That it's going to be one or the other is the model. Is every email? Is every proposal? Is every PowerPoint that's created by these tools going to look the same? The answer is absolutely. So what what you're saying. And it's really interesting is that we're on this path to just homogenous outputs of this, this sameness. So there is a room, there is a space for that human aspect, that human element to still exist in this new period. The best way to think about this, human beings do what human beings do and computers do what computers do and large language models and chat interfaces do what they do. And here's how it works. It's a word calculator. It literally chooses the next best token based on what it's been trained on. End of story. What can a human being do that is unique to being human? Well, there are many things. One, we can organize. In fact, we're the best organizers in the world, humans. And the best organizers are the richest, most stable. You may hate the United States government for all the things that it does wrong. You may love it for all the things it does right. I'll tell you what it's doing right. It's a bureaucracy that has stood the test of time over the last couple hundred years and the, the most successful organization of human beings for a single purpose on earth. And you can go down the list of governments with the next highest GDPs around the globe and in order, they are the best organized. And in some cases, there are corporations that have higher uh, market caps than countries have GDP, in which case those those are better organized than those countries. Well, human beings are organized. So the one thing we do is we organize brilliantly. But the thing we do that's germane to AI that's as important as our organizational skill is human brains are able to simplify incredibly complex patterns into very simple questions. So for example, you might have a, a dermatologist, I, I'm just making this up, who's looking at slides that might be cancerous. And the dermatologist is a 30-year expert in, in dermatology. They don't think about this slide the way a computer thinks about the slide or the way that an optical scanner would look at this slide. Now, all day long, you could put data into a large language model. All day long. All the data that ever existed about any kind of cancer cell into a large language model, it's not going to simplify anything into those 10 questions because that's not what it does, but humans do. So when you identify that, oh, that is miscolored or that doesn't look right, whatever doesn't look right means to the gut of a, of a super experienced pathologist, they'll send the sample out for further study, which a computer will do far better than a human will because a computer can apply in a very methodical way, in an algorithmic way, a rule-based way. I must perform this test and this test and this test and look for anomalies. And humans will make mistakes in those cases that computers won't. So 
a, a human AI partnership, a, a, a human AI co-working or symbiotic relationship, human synthetic partnership, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really have a name yet, but you do what you do as a human and, and the, the AI does what it does. Here's the most important part. This does not hurt anybody at the top. Taylor Swift will use these tools to be a better, faster, more efficient producer of Taylor Swift stuff. Which is why I find all these lawsuits about, well, you scraped my blank and I'm like a famous person. It's like, stop it. You're the best position to use these tools best. And it also doesn't hurt. In fact, it exactly the opposite. Totally empowers people who don't have skills. Let's talk music for one second. So somebody feels something and they want to emote it, but they don't have musical skills. They're not poets. They don't write well, but they can kind of describe what they're feeling. I want a rap lyric that talks about my breaking up with my significant other. Let me tell you about, all of a sudden a lyric shows up and then they could describe something like, could you make me a float that's appropriate for this lyric? And now they can rap over it. Somebody who had no musical skills, somebody who had no poetic skills, somebody who had no production skill whatsoever is now empowered to do something where they feel something and now you can feel it too. That's magic. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's literally magic. Who gets hurt by this is everybody who sits in the middle, right? The top is going to just use it for production tools, a new efficient production tool. The bottom, new empowerment. Every journeyman, everybody in the middle gets screwed because if you're not great, if you're not really great, if you are just algorithmically working through the process every day, if you are basically following rules too, this thing's going to kick your ass and just kill you. The fear is well-founded because if you are mediocre, this is the best mediocre tool set ever built. It's going to do mediocre work. And if you do mediocre work, it's going to do it better than you. It's going to be better mediocre than you are. weeks ago, I was in New York City at the Boston Consulting Group Generative AI Summit, and I heard Doug Shapiro talking about how it's going to impact content creation. And he had loads of examples of videos he'd created, incredible stuff that had taken him minutes. He said, the next avatar won't come from a big Hollywood studio. It'll be two kids in a garage in Illinois who had a story and could bring it to life with the same it completely shifts the the quality that well, empowers people, like you said, to do things that they weren't capable of before. So if they've got that seed, that sort, that creativity, that human spark, they can do something just as equal as James Cameron's Titanic or uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. And I th I thought that was really profound. And then the people, therefore, that are getting, should we say, scared or worried, is the status quo. Right. It's the status quo. Now there's more challenges. Now there's more competition. I think about it differently. First of all, whatever you believe social media did to media, like however you in your own mind think of that, what I am calling social production will do to production. And one of the things where I disagree with what Shapiro said at BCG 
absolutely, I wouldn't say disagree, I, where I'll push back and say it doesn't matter if it's James Cameron quality because these tools are rewriting what it is that film grammar, video grammar, audio grammar, acceptable grammars are. For example, if you go to YouTube right now or TikTok or uh, Instagram stories, you'll hear a synthetic voice. There are, about, there are three of them. They come from Eleven Labs. People who do not know how to do a voiceover or are not skilled enough or have terrible voices or don't speak English properly or just whatever are using Eleven Labs to do the voiceovers for their videos. It is fully accepted by everybody that this synthetic voice, in fact, it almost adds an authenticity to a piece of user-generated content on TikTok that you know somebody put this together using those tools. That's not James Cameron quality. That's this new other area completely evolved out of this generative AI movement or, or the technology Im improvements over the last, call it 24 months. This will continue to improve. Our tastes will change. The way that EDM was born out of digital audio workstations, the way that drum machines changed the music business, like the way that string synthesizers, uh, that uh, analog audio synthesizers changed disco music from uh, full string sections to synthetic string sections, and people started to go, wow, that sounds great. The way that uh, additive digital synthesizers replaced analog synthesizers in popular music, we evolved. The way, by the way, that... Um, uh, we used to use 16 by 9 at widescreen would be the way you shot video. Now everybody shoots 9 by 16, so it works on your phone because we're a mobile society. That's a grammar change, right? You have to tell your story in 9 by 16, not 16 by 9. We're accepting of that now. We're, we'll watch a television news or, um, item where they've, in fact, had to do something to fill in the rest of the screen because the footage that they're using the, from, you know, the on-the-scenes footage was shot 9 by 16, and it doesn't fill the screen. We're totally fine with that now. So we don't need to get to James Cameron avatar level. And the younger the audience is, the more likely they are to recognize it as for them, by them. Uh, you go to West Broadway in New York City, you're going to find a bunch of small boutique shops, each one in, in art galleries, all individually merchandised, each beautifully by someone who's really gifted. Then you go to Route 17 in Paramus and you go to all those franchise stores and yeah. every store literally looks the same. So which is it? Am I going to forget that James Cameron's capable of making Avatar, which was so stunning? Maybe James Cameron gets to still make that with these tools and they get better, right? But you're going to have the vast majority of social producers using social production to describe mm -hmm. what they want and getting some seriously middle-of-the-road nonsense that we're going to all accept as this is media, this is production. It is so clear the path it's happened before this is history repeating itself with a new tool set we both could be right but i think just the tonnage of what you're going to see on tiktok the tonnage of what you're going to see on on um meta the tonnage of what you see on on x and what you see on instagram so outweighs by volume what you're going to see if you're ever even going to go into a movie theater yeah i remember doing a project with when i was at lg with ridley scott and he had put out a challenge on YouTube. He, he asked five questions for people. And he got people on their mobile phones and their other devices to answer those five questions. And then he stitched it together into a movie called A Life in a Day by Ridley Scott. It's available on YouTube. It's on YouTube now. And his argument was, these people can shoot this stuff and answer the questions, but you still need a director. 
because there was also a notion at the time that all this YouTube user-generated content would displace television and movies, and it didn't happen. So what you're saying here is that paradigm still exists, user-generated content that people watch, and my kids are on have their favorite YouTube things on YouTube, but they're just upping their production quality. They're just upping their the production curve. That's right. Look, at the end of the day, um, I, I promise you, the 1%, the Aaron Sorkins of the world, the James Camerons of the world, the Steven Spielbergs of the world, will use these as production enhancement tools. It's just going to raise the bar for everybody else and create a new standard, which is how we see everything. None of this actually matters because we're speculating about something that will happen in such a, a gradual and organic way that you probably won't notice it as it goes. We've been so promiscuous with our data, we didn't notice what social media did to us. We didn't notice what big tech and big data organizations did to us. We didn't notice how it impacted politics, how it in impacted mental health of teenagers, how what it did to young girls and suicide watches and what it did to self-esteem and what it did to politics and what it did to bullying and what like, well at, and until it like became a thing it's like ai regulation such that they're ever going to be able to do it can't happen until they regulate data which they don't seem to be willing to do because if you don't regulate the training data then you certainly can't regulate ai and since they don't seem to be willing to regulate data in any way and since people are so ignorant of how their data is used and are so promiscuous with their data. I, I had a, a conversation the other day. One of my friends had a heart valve replacement and posted from the hospital that the operation went perfectly and they posted it on Facebook. And when I saw him at a uh, holiday party a few days ago, I said, why, why? What, was, what possible purpose could you have had for posting that? And, and he gave me his reasons, and they were all the right reasons. You know, I want my friends to know, blah, 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 blah. I said, you understand the insurance companies cannot scrape that data legally. But anyone whose job is to create profiles of people can scrape it all day long. And when your insurance rates go up because you've been packaged and sold to an insurance company as part of a wealth of scraped data that informs you know, with proxy data and other ways that they get around the mediocre, uh -huh. mild, almost non-existent data regulations in our world, don't be surprised. And he says, nah, it's not going to happen. I said, call me. This is so amazingly dumb what we do as, as human beings with, our, with all of our data. I'm not worried about AI taking people's jobs. AI is not going to take everybody's job. It's going to take some people's jobs. And by the way, the biggest danger to anybody listening is somebody who uses AI and they're in your job better than you do. Like if you're not a great AI coworker personally, your job is in risk because somebody who is great at it's going to do three times the work that three be three times or four times more productive than they were without these tools and you are not as productive and so you're going to not fare well in that situation. Uh, will AI take actual jobs from people? Yeah, it'll take some. Like all new technologies take some. It's also going to create a zillion new jobs. Are you trained and qualified for those jobs? Maybe. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. I'm not going to tell everybody to go to school for advanced mathematics because uh, that's silly, right? Not everybody's going to learn linear algebra now because it's like the language of, of generative AI. No, but uh, the mathematical language of generative AI. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, 
the biggest danger to society is the danger that no one's paying attention to or even talking about, which is the underlying data sets and also the remarkable path to monoculturism, which I think is the worst of all of it. Well, you, you reminded me from our conversation nearly three years ago, Shelley, we talked about the what Facebook and other social media had unleashed at the time because it was only a week or two after the insurrection at the Capitol. And, and still at that time, we I think there was a lot of people still in denial about the negative externalities of, of social media. And when you looked at the, the legislation, it was the Internet Act from, was it 1996 under Bill Clinton that still regulated all of this and there was, there was all this conversation. Now, I noticed that you posted as well about the legislation and regulations that have been happening in, in the EU. There's obvious dangers with generative AI, obvious things that we're foreseeing now and potential risks. Do you think the legislators have learned from Facebook and from what happened uh, over the last uh, five or six years to be ahead of the potential dangers that generative AI could foist upon society? No. Did I wait too long to answer? <laughs> so, but what are the EU doing? Because they're leading the way. Is 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 there any guardrails are, are on the downsides? Are they leading the way? The EU has a history of regulating because they don't. The way they make their money in the EU is they regulate and fine as opposed to innovate. Like they should just put some money into innovation. It'd be much better if we had smart people in the EU allowed to innovate as opposed to them just putting like restraints on every single thing that gets done there. Um, look. You can't know enough about AI to regulate it. It's just unknowable. Anybody who says they have this together is just lying or speculating or trying to authoritatively talk about this as, as if there's a way to know the future. We can never know the future. And we, the very first alien intelligence we ever met was a, a neural network after statistical machine learning. The first neural networks we, we or deep learning networks we ever met. What do we do with them? We tasked them to do one thing, put the right message in front of the right person in the right place at the right time. And the metric was a single metric called engagement. So that's a 3,500 year old metric. The Greek theater in Syracuse, Italy, the the city of Ephesus uh, outside of Kushidasa, Turkey has uh, four theaters that were outside of it. Some of them have been unearthed. Some are still buried. 7,000-seater, 14,000-seater, 21,000-seater, 28,000-seater. Why? Because every night somebody was entitled, everyone in town actually was entitled to a seat where they could hear an oration, a debate, watch a comedy or a tragedy, go to a musical concert. And those concerts, those exhibitions, those debates were curated. They were curated for one metric only, engagement, engage the audience. When we got to our first alien intelligence, the first artificial intelligence, the joke goes, hey, in the 21st century, the smartest minds are not trying to cure cancer or get us to the moon. They're trying to get us to click on ads. Right person, right place, right time, right message. That's the engagement metric for curation. Now, when you curate, you have to pre-produce. I have to pre-produce the content. I have to meta-tag it. I have to classify it. I have to cluster it. And I have to prepare it in a way that I can surface it for the right person, right place, right time, when I want to put the right message there. The CG boundary, the curation generation boundary has changed this. Now, at low or no cost, in near or in real time, I can generate the message or the content as opposed to have to pre-build it and curate it. This is such a profound 
profound change in the way we communicate, it can't be overstated. And anyone who thinks they know the impact of this, including me, is lying. I just know it's going to have an insane impact because the same way that President Obama was the first web president and President Trump was the first social media president, whoever gets elected next general election is going to be the first Gen AI marketing president where the Gen AI is just constantly repackaging the bots or constantly repackaging messaging until they hit their KPIs, their OKRs, and it costs them nothing because it's near real time or at real time, at or no low cost. Just bang out the emails, bang out the social media posts. It's, it's going to be unbelievable how automated this is going to be. What's the impact of that? I have no idea, but it doesn't sound that great to me. No, it's an amplification of the problems that exist. I believe so. I believe so. Uh, I'm not scared of it. It's a fact of life and no one should be scared of it. You should be aware of it. And I think you put your finger on the pulse, you know, whatever ways you can monitor this so that you are prepared. No one's going to stop this. And I don't even know what this is in quotes. No one's going to stop it. It's coming. It's, it's coming. It's here. It's evolving mm -hmm. so quickly. I got to tell you, my business has always been at the Palmer Group. What's new? What's next? What does it mean for your business? And that's why we make a living. That's what we do at CES. That's what we do at Mobile World. at South by. What's what we do for our clients? I had a quote years ago that I always see reposted in places. Today is the slowest rate of change you'll ever experience for the rest of your life is how I used to start some of my speeches, right? I got to tell you, and this is not hyperbole. I write a newsletter every morning, literally every morning since 1996. If I don't read... In the morning, if I let someone do a synopsis for me or if I've got busy, I have a morning meeting and all I have time to do is write the rant about the thing that I'm interested in and the other stories I don't get a chance to read like through my hundred tabs. If one day goes by, I might be okay. If two days goes by, I feel like I, it's going to take me a week to catch up. I've never seen it come at the speed that this is coming. This is insanely fast from my perspective. And I thought it was fast before. I was not prepared for literally being out of date two days later. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people every day and I think everyone I, I, I rely on feels the same way. We're playing catch up all day long. It's a wonderful time for, for technologists. It's a wonder, you know, this is a, you could maybe equate it to late nineties of the internet, maybe, but wow, this is coming quick. If we turn the clock back 10 years, I remember at the at the peak of the Gartner hype cycle was big data and predictive yeah. analytics, right? Do you remember? And, and for years, we talked about big data and it's going to do this and it's going to do that. And then it became AI and ML and people were talking about AI and ML. Yep. And in, in two of the recent conferences I've been to where they've called it generative AI, 80% of the discussion is just the regular AI and automation that was talked about 10 years ago. And, and I'm talking about in, in the notion of telecoms, our industry, yep. where you talk about predictive network maintenance, next best offer, uh, personalization and profiling. That's not generative AI. That's AI. We don't... So do you think there's an element of hype with generative AI that has reignited the big data predictive analytics discussion? You know, it certainly has for our company. 
like I said, everyone thinks AI was invented November 30th, 2022. That's been yeah. great for us because senior executives at every one of our client companies are talking about AI two years ago, literally up till November 30th, 2022, to be fair, AI was something the data office handled. AI was something the CTO's office handled. It was not something that any C-suite executive that wasn't one of those two cared about. Like people are literally calling out the language models by name in LT meetings now. So it's like, wow, okay, the Wall Street Journal and 60 Minutes and mainstream media have done a good job getting senior leaders to at least know what this is. Now, as it turns out, we have not been served well by the nonsense. Um, the, the It hallucinates, it's, it's stealing data, like all the negative nonsense about uh, generative AI. In practice, the way we use it for our clients is as a transformation layer. And what I mean by that is you'll have, you have structured data and we can build queries uh, using these tools. Uh, query builders are well understood. You now can put a natural language interface uh, on the front end. It's good old fashioned NLU, um, NLP, natural language understanding, natural language processing. On the output though, you can put a large language model and you could give the output a persona. So imagine um, you're used to having a dashboard, right? Because everybody loves dashboards, right? Well, what if you could talk to the dashboard in a chat client and ask it like different questions as opposed to calling uh -huh. up the data office who then, you know, translates that to a SQL or, or a database programmer who translates that to a report writer or a, a dashboard coder who then makes the dashboard do that. You as a senior executive, a subject matter expert can ask all the what questions you want to ask. And the biggest problem that uh, we've had with ChatGPT being so popular, I'm using it as a catch-all phrase, all LLMs in the chat clients, is that people don't understand you cannot ask data a why question. Why did sales go up is not a question you can ask of data. What's the last day we can sell widget X at full price before we have to mark it down, transship it, or send it back to the manufacturer in market 12? That is a what question. Now, if you can ask 10 of those what questions, you as a subject matter expert can put a narrative on top of that if you want to tell it to somebody, but the you can ask all the what questions you want. The problem is because ChatGPT can be talked to, people do not generally understand what a data-driven question is as opposed to like a open-ended why question. So yeah, the biggest problem we're having now is training, training our clients to understand where large language models add value, where they don't, where you're using a neural network, where you're using a machine learning or statistical machine learning, where you are going to use a large language model and what value it would have to transform whatever data you have into something more accessible by more people. And by the way, that productivity is hardcore. The other thing that happens now, and I think it, it's important to point out, is that every major uh, provider of office suite software is dedicated to selling you a co-pilot at an additional fee. That's all table stakes. Like this, you're just going to have to get good at it. So we've got two different sides of the house now. We've got the straight up productivity where you just everybody, everybody gets a Death Star. So Death Star is for everybody. Then you've got this like unlocking value in corporate data by letting subject matter experts have different level of access to existing data, which will in fact unlock value because again, their subject matter expertise can now be directly translated back and forth, transform back and forth between the data and their own knowledge base. This is really magical. We've seen over the last, I'm going to say three, four months as we started to deploy these systems, because it took the first six, eight months of 2023 to get people ready to talk about it. 
in, in a practical way. But now we've got systems in where, where senior executives are sitting on top of chat clients and they're literally talking to their dashboards. And this is, this is something new. We haven't seen it before. It's cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, a, it's, and, and it really cuts out, you know, when you, you know what it's like with a big business, you call the data office, you call the data science team, you call the sales research team. It could be a day. It could be three days. You can go back and forth for two weeks until you get the report you want or till the dashboard is actually redone the way you want it. How cool is it to be able to go into a little chat client and ask it a question and have it just respond? Like a whole new level of, of, of expertise is being tapped because it's right you you're you're on a zoom with somebody you get the answer you need right that second and you could talk about it like that's an amazing uh -huh. productivity enhancer and an yeah, amazing yeah. value unlock so yeah it's not all gen ai it's it's all ai or catch all phrase machine learning and i think that the devil's in the details right it always is do you think uh, this is something i heard on a podcast from i think it was the wall street journal the, the notion of prompt engineering and prompt engineering courses. And you talked about it before. You've got to be better at using this stuff than the person sitting next to you. I did a course uh, on GPT-4 in Israel. It wasn't prompt engineering. Is that something I should be telling my 15-year-old daughter that she needs to start looking at now? Is that like one of those, we do English and maths at school. Do we need now, moving forward, need to do, you know, as mandatory English, maths and prompt engineering? Is this a, a really important skill in this new era so i don't know how much longer it will be the most important skill we have at courses.shellypalmer.com there's a free course called generative ai for execs uh there have been hundreds of thousands of people that have taken the course and it, we update it every couple three days i couldn't write a book about ai because it would go out of date the minute i wrote the book or <laughs> before i finished writing it but we could build a course so there's also a bunch of free resources for people at shellypalmer.com slash AI. You can get to the course there also. Look, prompt engineering, we call it prompt crafting. Uh, prompt engineering is a very specific kind of approach to, uh, but crafting a prompt, being able to tell the language model, large language model, who it's acting as, then what its target audience is, and then ultimately make a detailed ask. These are skills you're going to need and it's not as easy as that. There are frameworks you can use to get more out of the models. The models drift. You can't not be on a model for two weeks and expect it to react the same way. So prompt crafting, prompt tuning, prompt engineering, these are big and important skills. Will they always be big and important skills? I think as these tools get better, those skills will become less important because the automation will be better. It will build just the, the tools will get better. But for yeah. right now, you would do yourself a giant service to seriously understand how to do embeds, the difference between a pre-prompt and a prompt. By the way, GPT-4 Turbo can take 125,000 tokens. Claude's Anthropic can, uh, Anthropics Claude can take 128,000 tokens. That's a roughly 300 pages of data inside the context window at the same time. So you can put a, a really decent pre-prompt and a prompt in there. You can constrain your data and your ask really well and learning to do that will make you much more powerful. Will it always be that way? I don't know. But for, for the foreseeable future, uh, prompt crafting, prompt engineering, prompt tuning, that's the skill. It's not a skill. It's the skill. You, and you've written something I thought was fascinating, uh, Shelley, on LinkedIn the other day. And it was a theory dubbed the winter break hypothesis. 
tell our listeners a little bit about this because is this a move towards general AI to AGI? Is it, I, I thought this was fascinating, uh, and I have my own example of uh, of something I noticed with ChatGPT. But t- tell our listeners a little bit about the winter break hypothesis. So. Everybody I know, apparently, because I put it in my newsletter and we had thousands of responses to the question, do you think chat GPT is getting lazy? And my example was I asked it to take a list uh, that I had it make and output it in HTML. It was a long list of like 50 bullets. And I didn't feel like, you know, going in and you know tweaking it. So I asked it if it would do it in HTML. It built an HTML page. It did the first two bullets and then said, this is the template. You can fill in the rest. I'm like, what? That's Wait a minute. You don't get to say that. So I did it again. And then I was yeah. like, hey, I need you to do the whole thing. And it said, well, yeah, I that it's too much data for me to do the whole thing. But you can here's the template. You can do it. I'm like, okay. It's shirking its responsibilities for 20 bucks a month. You can't <laughs> fire it, but I was really mad at it. Then all of a sudden, I started reading all over the internet people having similar things. And I went and researched it a little bit. A couple a couple of white papers were put out in a few different theses, a couple different blog posts, this idea of this winter break hypothesis where it's, it's December and it's just feeling like it's gloomy and it doesn't, it's getting a little lazy and it doesn't feel like working that much. So some people were able to get it to perk up by offering it like a, a $20 tip. Yeah. Now, apparently any tip over $200 it didn't think was real. But if you told it, hey, you know, if you finish this, I'll give you a $20 tip. And, and it, it perked up. It's like, so what's going on here? What, one of the theories is that there is an emergent quality in large language models where they seem to be able to reason. Now, no one can fully explain this or has adequately fully explained it. There is the theory of mind prompt that uh, everybody's using, this chain of thought prompt, where you, at the end of your original ask, you say, let's work this out step by step to ensure the best outcome. Wow. And what the model will do then, although I'm using this as a generic chat GPT, but any any large language model will do, is it will enumerate its strategy before it, it fulfills the request. And by reasoning through the problem, it does a better job. You can demonstrate it for yourself by taking an equation like two times 10 to the eighth over 77 cubed or something. I mean, just some weird equation. Mm-hmm. It's a 99% chance it's going to get that wrong. But if you ask it to teach you to do that equation, it will reason through the entire problem. And there is a better than 90% chance that at the end of it, reasoning through and teaching you how to do the problem, it will get it right. And this little winter break hypothesis is just sitting in that whole like weird zone of things large language models do that you kind of scratch your head about and go, huh? Remember, it's a word calculator, but they also... This could be something as simple as the model is drifting because they're doing some fine tuning. And while they fix certain things, other things break. Like there may be totally logical, completely understandable explanations for this. But since none of us work inside of OpenAI and none of us have access, it's all black box to us. We don't really know.
there's been so much hype as well about OpenAI and Sam Altman. Yeah. And I've been listening to the, the, the podcast series that comes out every Sunday from, I think it's the Wall Street Journal, talking about the history of OpenAI. So, you know, because it only became in vogue, like you said, on the 30th of November 2022, when you actually go back in, in the history of it with Elon Musk and his part in it, and then the, the fact that it was all about non-profit, open source sharing, then they sold themselves to Microsoft and, and where they're evolving. And then we see Google and Gemini because Elon Musk always had this paranoia about Google, right? And their ability to do AI. Who's going to be the winner? Who do you think is leading the way? Is is Google, given its history, its heritage and, and its data, you know, going to finally catch up with this upstart called OpenAI? Are there other players waiting in the wings? So the winners here, the, you have to define win. And the way I would define win is additional market cap. Amazon's Q is their entry. Google is now Gemini. OpenAI is GPT-4, GPT-X, whatever's coming next. Twitter's got Grok. Salesforce has Einstein. The these are table stakes for the future. These are features inside of products, and the winners are those with the best distribution. Microsoft is clearly the way everybody computes. Everyone uses Microsoft Office. Some people use Google Workspace. Most people don't. Most offices are Microsoft Offices. Microsoft Office Premium is $22.50 a month. They're asking for 30 bucks a month extra for every co-pilot license you want. At the end of the day, Microsoft is going to kill it here because they have distribution, right? Google is going to kill it because they have distribution. Uh, Amazon's going to kill it because they have distribution. Like they're, they're all going to win. It's not like who's the winner. Who's not the winner? You and me. When we go to do our large language model and Congress has already regulated this based on the regulatory capture documents that OpenAI, Google, and Microsoft have had the legislators write that favor their uh, existing incumbent systems, and you and I try to train a model and we run into regulation that we can't beat with dollars we don't have. So the winners are big tech, all big tech writ large, and the losers are everybody who's not big tech. And this is, for anyone to think differently than that, they don't understand. You you can't go door to door. Like the idea that OpenAI just ate everybody's lunch, got to 100 million users, they're only going to stay relevant to the level that they product. Uh -huh. Once Microsoft Copilot gets to the point where I'm just doing like what I need to do with this thing and it's just happening, I'm not going to, I'm not leaving the casino. I'm busy writing a Word document. And then I, if I can just say make a PowerPoint and it makes a good PowerPoint. And if I'm on my PowerPoint and I can say, just, yeah, make me an image of a dinosaur, you know, eating a computer and it does it and I like it. It's like, we're, I'm not leaving the casino because I'm, I'm trying to just get work done. So Microsoft already owns me. There's no word processor or chat GPT. I don't have a data store at, at, at OpenAI. I've got a damn data store in Azure Cloud, Google uh, GCP, and, and at AWS. It's like those guys own my data. Like, So if I'm going to have tools that help me do that, anything better there, then I'm going to get it from them. Of course I am. I mean, it's, you know, if you want to think about who's going to win, Spotify is probably the way most people who are music lovers get music, I, you know, right? So Apple came out with Apple Music and everybody said, why are they doing that? That's so dumb. It's like, what? dumb are you out of your mind they own the iphone ecosystem they own ios everybody who's like lazy is going to press the button and for six bucks a month they're going to have apple music which is going to be 90 percent as good as spotify it won't be 100 percent as good It'd be 90 percent as good 
if it was 80% as good, they're still going to win. They're Apple. And in fact, I think the investable thesis is questionable. What is the value of a, of a, of a unique large language model? Are we? I think the bigger question is, will small, lang small models like a, a Llama 7 billion parameter model be able to do enough work for you where it can live on your smartphone inside of an app where you don't need to go to the cloud to some you know trillion parameter model to get your your work done, and and how will those be distributed and how will that be infiltrated into every little part of our daily lives? Like, what does that look like? At some point, these tools are going to be commoditized. There isn't narrow focused AI, like really smart AI assistants that know medicine or know engineering or know you know your business. Like training that model up, that's going to be interesting. But the uh -huh. generative Generative pre-trained transformer model that just speaks English really well and knows a lot of things about a lot of things. It's so expensive to run. They're so expensive. I mean, literally so expensive to build and so expensive to run. Only organizations that can do a decent job with that are the companies that you know. You know my name. In the same way we talked about the problems that existed with social media will probably be amplified by generative AI the profit, the market cap of the big tech will be amplified by generative AI as well. I would think, so, I mean, look, I'm not a financial advisor and, you, you know, you ought to consult one if you want investment advice. But I'm long on Microsoft. I mean, you know, theoretically, I mean, that, they're going from $22.50 a month per seat to $52.50 per month per seat. That's got to be good for Microsoft, like across the board. And there's no one who's not going to do it because you will be at a disadvantage if you don't, right? It's every every desk that has a computer is going to have to have this in every organization. And it goes for every Google client too. So yeah, I think this is good for big tech. Who else it's good for? When somebody asked me what I thought it was going to do the GDP of the United States. And I'm like, probably nothing that you could, that you could call out because it's going to be a heterogeneous lift in productivity. Productivity is the key driver of economic success. We all understand that. So the more productive you are, the better you are. But some people are going to do more with less. Some people are going to have different cultures. Like I'd rather have time back. Some people are going to want to get home at five o'clock at night and see their kids. And this tool enables them to do that. Some people are going to want to work 24 hours a day and be, and be 10 times more productive, but they'll still work 24 hours a day. They'll just be amplifying their value by 10. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be all over the map. It's, you know, it's, it, it's a personal choice how you want to use these tools. It's a personal choice how you use computers, right? So I don't think I'm qualified to make that assessment, but what I what I do think is that we are in we're firmly in the generative era and we are firmly headed towards social production and we are firmly headed towards a time of immense productivity for those who wish to be more productive. And that's going to have a what I believe will be a profound impact on how we communicate with, with one another and it's also going to have a profound impact on the quality and the quantity of content we produce. There's a funny little stat. Apparently, uh, Amazon, they have a, a group called KDP, Kindle Publishing, uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. They are limiting you to um, three eBooks a day now to create because using uh, generative AI, people were creating like 50 books a day. That's indicative of the nonsense we're going to see as this thing goes through the Gartner hype cycle, cycle, you know, the thing that we're going to see that kind of nonsense and then it's going to find its level as all things do. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, so if we go back to the beginning of the, this conversation, Shelley, and 
like I said, I credit you with the first time I'd ever heard about generative AI and on and, and that podcast we did in uh, early 2021. We talked about the incredible exponential change and growth we're going through right now. So give me your prediction for the next 12 months. If we're sitting here in 12 months' time, where will we be on this subject? Will we be closer to general AI? So I think artificial general intelligence is a grail quest. I'm not sure it's achievable or attainable, but we don't need to have artificial general intelligence to have many of the benefits of having artificial general intelligence because we don't generally do everything. We are always doing a specific task. And so as we become better at the specific tasks, using narrow focus models, we can accomplish a great deal. 12 months from now, what will evolve, I believe, and I think is an investable thesis, are autonomous agents, where instead of setting individual tasks with one model, you are stacking models and you are asking that stack of models to achieve a goal and your interaction with its goal achievement is highly minimalized. And so this idea of an autonomous agent, something that can go accomplish a goal for you rather than do a task. Now, the difference is a task might be, I want to write a birthday poem for my three-year-old granddaughter. She likes Sesame Street and Miss Rachel make it rhyme. And like that's a pretty high fluency, low accuracy task that it'll just do. But a higher stakes, higher accuracy task might be go find me the lowest price airline ticket. So then we start getting into like a different world, right? Now it's doing stuff. And I think in the next 12 months, you'll see AI doing stuff. Remember, Apple's been dead silent on this. Siri sucks like huge. There's nothing about that that has any value. And by the way, Alexa sucks. So it's an English language only sales oriented, you know, Amazon thing. I was like, they're either going to have to kill that or they're going to have to make it unbelievable. So even some of these giant tech companies haven't done anything yet. I can't imagine the largest pile of cash on planet Earth with the largest number of high value high net worth individuals owning their $1,500 smartphones, a billion of them. Like they're not going to put something in their hands that does this. Stop it. Like that's going to happen. So you don't need to like be a soothsayer to understand this is what's coming down. It's just the question, when is it coming? Is it this year? Is it next year? There are some very big players who have just been sitting on their hands or seemingly sitting on their hands. So I would think autonomous agents some entry from Apple, some entry from Amazon that we're going to respect. And by yeah. the way, at some point, Google has to stop tripping every time it walks in the door. Yeah. Well, and I, I was thinking, when you were telling me that, I was thinking of an example. I've got Google Home all hooked up here. But the notion of what you're suggesting is, you know, I'll ask it to tell me what the football score is, what the weather's going on, etc. But I could say to it, Find me a restaurant tonight in Toronto for four people with a window seat, and it's going to cost me less than a hundred bucks. So it will it will do that analysis. It will call those restaurants, and it will make the appropriate reservation on my credit card on my behalf. And then it will come back to me and say, "Hey Matt, you're booked in at Canoe, eight o'clock, done." 
that's what you're suggesting, isn't it? Basically. Yeah, I mean, and that's the simplest of it. But yes, the 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 idea is that it's multitasking, it's accomplishing an entire goal as opposed to an individual task. Because right now, you can ask it to find you that restaurant, make the suggestion, and in some cases with a plugin, you could ask it to book that restaurant reservation on Open Table. But there isn't a seamless way that you can trust at the moment that makes all of that happen. And certainly for other tasks that are more obscure, that don't have apps that they could tap APIs into right now, it doesn't exist. But I feel like autonomous agents are the next thing because it's what we're working on. It's what all of the best engineers we know are working on. I think the way to think about the future is just super automation. Like every cognitive, non-repetitive thing that you can imagine, you just super automate. And how possible is it? I don't know. You do your best to figure it out. And some of it's going to fail and some of it's going to succeed. Some things you really need to be involved in, some stuff you don't. And, you know, it's, uh, look, procurement, half the stuff bots already buy from bots in most procurement offices, right? You're buying pencils, it's automated. That's what a subscription is. It's kind of an automated sy system, right? It's not sentient in any way. And I mean that in the most general way. Think it doesn't take an inventory yeah. and go, you need pencils. It's not getting emotional about it. Right? But there are <laughs> but there are systems in retail operations that do tie inventory to procurement that you know where all this process is automated. Walmart's maybe the best at logistics, right? You pick up a bottle of Advil in Danbury, Connecticut, in their Walmart store, a truck is rolling in Bentonville, Arkansas, filled with Advil, going to DC to like make that up in like a week and a half when they know for a fact that they're gonna need to replenish this. Like they're amazing at that. So that's all automated now. How much more automated could it be? Well, there's a long way. To, like, it could be a lot more automated. And I think that's all this stuff is going to be behind the scenes and subtle, giant productivity enhancers. And you're going to see margins increase because of it. You'll see some workers displaced, which will piss some people off. You'll see other workers that have to, you know, get really good, high paying jobs as they work this stuff out. This is the natural order of things. So again, my prediction is autonomous agents for sure. And some of the biggest companies that have been very quiet and also those who have been screwing up, Google, I'm talking to you, you know, are going to get out of the gate and, and we're going to oh. see a new world. I mean, you know, it's what, well, choose your metaphor. We're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube, the genie back in the bottle, the cow back in the barn, whatever, like whichever one of those you'll like, we're not doing any of that. Like we're just moving forward. <laughs> and as we get towards the end now, I want to ask you, Shelley, because everybody has a personal thing that they've used generative AI for recently. Mine is I made all the Christmas cards for my children we made on Dolly. You know, we've talked about productivity and work stuff. What fun stuff have you done recently using generative AI? So, I mean, we use it every day, uh, but my little personal project using um, GPT-4 Turbo's API, I did a pre-prompt where I took my jazz discography and I asked it, to assume the persona of the genres of music, bebop, hard bop, mainstream jazz, in their era, and then create personas that were not the players, but the music itself. And then I started asking the music questions about itself. That wow. was really super fun. So what question would you ask the music then, as an example? One conversation I had was I'm in the West Village in New York City in 1950. I want to go see some jazz tonight. Who am I going to see? And what are they likely to play? And then after it started to do that, I was like, 
and I would ask it some really, I don't want to get technical, I, some really obscure musical question about chromatic harmony or they didn't use modes back then. None of those guys thought in modes. So that sounds modal to me, but I know that he was thinking melodic minor. What do you think he's really thinking? And getting into that kind of insanely obscure conversation with the genre as opposed to the player. It was just one of those really fun moments where, um, and I started my career as a composer producer. So I just had this weird idea. What if music had a personality? What would it be? What if bebop had a personality? What, uh -huh. if, you know, what, what if Baroque music had a personality? What would it be? Would it be stuffy? Would it be, would it be bohemian? Would it be awesome? Like what would it yeah. be? I think it's all made up. That's the hallucinations in this case are a feature, not a bug. I turned the temperature way, way, way to the crazy side, not, not the <laughs> deterministic side. And I let the thing go. And it wasn't for anything other than pure entertainment. It was not uh -huh. for any goal. It wasn't like I didn't care what the answers were. It was very, very low stakes, very high fluency. And the goal was what, what could you do that you never did before? So, you know, look, I like doing those kinds of projects. One of the ones I loved was uh, there's a, a model called Character AI. For 10 bucks a month, you go in there, you create personas, right? So you can go speak to fake Paris Hilton or fake Elon Musk, or you can create a significant other or whatever. But I did a thing there that, that just made me laugh. I made a chat room with Isaac Newton and um, Stephen Hawking and uh, Marie Curie and Richard Feynman. I, I just, I wanted to talk physics with it. Then I added Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was not in their league, so I took him out. You know, Feynman was talking about quantum physics and Isaac Newton was talking about classical mechanics, although he didn't know it at the time. So to him, it was natural philosophy. It wasn't even physics. Uh, Marie Curie was doing her like crazy stuff that she did. It was like the craziest physics conversation. All the chat room. And they're all chatting in their own persona, in their own time frame about the same problem. So you couldn't ask a question about dark matter. Hawking could answer it. But of course, Isaac Newton had no idea what it was. You couldn't really talk about space time with Isaac Newton, but he was fascinated by it. The persona of Isaac Newton was fascinated by this idea that classical mechanics would have only worked to a certain point, that there was a more accurate. It was just, and it did such a nice job. I thought to myself, you know, I, I teach at Newhouse School. I'm the um, professor of advanced, of advanced media in residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communications. I teach in the master's program there. And I thought, what a great teaching tool. Like what yeah. an interesting way to bring physics to life and maybe not in such a, a, a conglomerated discombobulated group of physicists maybe you just put like you know Oppenheimer Feynman you know a couple other like quantum guys Heisenberg you know a couple of the others in a room so that they're all talking the same thing so that it's yeah yeah but what a great way to give a learning experience yeah, yeah. To, to students so yeah I mean there's like that's the fun stuff I, when is it is it real or fake or nonsense it's hard to know Thank you for your time today, Shelley. It's been a fascinating conversation as ever. Now, we finish off our podcast these days. When you were in season two, three years ago, we didn't have this feature. And we call it TGI to go. I'm going to give you a multiple choice question. You're going to give me your preference. 
and it just allows our listeners to get a little bit more have a bit of fun and learn a little bit more about you so are you ready for tgi to go go for it tgi to go question number one would you rather go to rome or paris right now if you had that choice rome yeah why is that the Colosseum is there and also Chichino. Okay. Yeah. Which is a, a little cave and it's in a catacomb and it's a restaurant that serves, although I don't like it, oxtail. They're famous for that. I actually like all the other food they have there. I haven't really gotten into the oxtail yet, but Chichino is cool. Question two Star Trek or Star Wars? You're asking me which of my two children I prefer. <laughs> so I cannot answer. I love them that, both equally. You love them both? Yeah. What do you think of the Star Wars franchise since it's gone over to Disney and all the... Uh... Okay, now we have another hour. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. Episodes four, five, and six are magical. And everybody who saw these in the right order, four, five, six, and then ignored one, two, three, and yeah. then ignored seven, eight, nine but saw them because you owed, you owed George Lucas your fantasy life in sci-fi, so you had to go see them just so his uh-huh. pockets would be lined and then Disney's. At least they understand that Darth Vader is evil. My problem is people who have seen these parents who were so bad at parenting that they allowed their children to watch these movies in numerical order, one, two, three, Oof. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, in which case you believe Darth Vader is just a, a misunderstood child. <laughs> If you must watch one, two, three, and you must watch six, uh, seven, eight, nine, which, by the way, I don't recommend for anyone. I think you just watch four, five, six in the order four, five, six, and then you are done. Some people like Rogue One. I liked it. I didn't love it. As far as the series are concerned, Mando, I like. Ahsoka's unwatchable. Boba Fett, I watched. I'm very jaded and very spoiled. I feel like Star Wars, we need hours to talk about. With respect to Star Trek, all the movies sucked. Yeah. The original series I loved. I liked um, Next Generation and watched it with my family as it was, you know, unfolding. All the other Star Treks, eh. Discovery, uh, Strange New Discovery doesn't know what it is. And I'm liking Strange New Worlds and I hope it comes back. I went to school with Darth Vader. The the, The actor who plays the new Darth Vader in the later ones was actually in school with me. Spencer, oh, wow. Spencer Wilding. Uh, is he said, he's, he's pretty much been the bad guy in everything. He's just a costume character, right? He's a, but I told Larissa, I said, um, you know, I was at school with, uh, uh, with Darth Vader and uh, Larissa thought that I must be that old. I was at school with David Prose, the, uh, the original uh, Darth Vader who passed away just uh, a yeah, couple of years ago. Yeah, just passed away yeah, a few years right. ago. Yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, that's great. Next question. Winter or summer? Unfair. Same thing. Two of my favorite yeah. children. I like I like the water. I like to ski. Yeah. But didn't you have a place in Killington? Was it Killington? Or? Stratton. Yeah. Stratton. Ah, right. Yeah. yeah. So we're skiers and then, you know, lake. It's like, I, I love them both. I, I yeah. can't. Cheers. You had to go for a drink later on this evening and your companion for this drink would be Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. Which one would you choose? Right now, 
the most interesting person on earth is Elon Musk. Mark is always interesting. He's brilliant. Full disclosure, Facebook's a client. Full disclosure, yeah. X is a client. But but but, yeah. but but not not withstanding right now, if you said tonight I'm going for a drink. I don't have a lot of questions for Mark tonight. I got a lot of questions for Elon tonight. So that definitely yeah. Elon, yeah. You know, we, we had Mark's sister, Randy, on Randy, the podcast. Yeah. yeah, we weren't allowed to talk about Mark, though. No, <laughs> no, very clear. Yeah. The Jets or the Giants? You're in uh, New York. Giants. The Giants. Yeah. Do you go? Do you, do you been to any of the... I live in, I live in New York. We go yeah. to football. Football is a thing. You know, Giants have really disappointed me, and, and I'm very sad about it. Jets, yeah. I will watch, you know, just because I will. The Aaron Rodgers yeah. thing was really sad. But Giants, I mean, you know, yeah. if, and one day they'll come back. One day they'll really be a Giants team again, as opposed to whatever this is they're fielding now. Giants, old Giants yeah. fan. Cool. Now, uh, it's Friday evening. I'm going to get some takeout food this evening. But if you had to get some, Shelly, would you choose Indian or Chinese? And I, why do I finish on this question? It always makes me insanely hungry. But uh, wh which one would you choose? Tonight, I would choose Indian. On most nights, I would choose Chinese. Mm. Mm. Good. Well, look, I want to thank you again for joining us today, Shelly. Fascinating conversation. It's flown by. We could have carried on talking, I'm pretty sure, for hours more uh, on a whole bunch of topics. But I want to thank you, Shelley. Thank you very much. We'll we'll have you back in a year's time to test that future prediction and see yeah, where we it. are. And good luck in um, CES, which you've got coming up in the new year. Thanks so much. All the very best. Thank you very much, Shelley. It's great seeing and speaking to you as always. What a great finish to a great year. The year 1GE. Check out Shelley's work and free courses on his website. The link is in the show notes. And wow, happy new year to everyone. What will the year 2GE have in store for us? Now, we'll be back in March 2024 as we cover MWC Barcelona. And I'm fairly sure that generative AI may feature quite prominently at that event. So please subscribe to our podcast and all the usual podcast channels. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and enjoyed the show, please rate and review. Also visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash The Great Indoors, where we have all the episodes that we've ever created. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto. And this time, before we sign off, just take a listen to this clip. It certainly made me think. Robots don't feel fear. They don't feel anything. They don't get hungry, they don't sleep. I do. I have even had dreams. Human beings have dreams. Even dogs have dreams, but not you. You are just a machine, an imitation of life. Can a robot write a symphony? Can a robot turn a canvas into a beautiful masterpiece? Can you?